Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. Follow along with me. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let me pray again. Papa, we are desperate for you tonight. As we look at this text, um, God, I pray that you would move me out of the way, that your spirit would reign, God, that that we would see the important implications of what it means to passionately pursue you with our lives. And what's at stake if we do not. Uh, God, my heart is heavy tonight. And so, uh, I thank you that you're, you're all that we need. And I pray that you'd meet us where we're at. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Um, a little background as we... Uh, as we kind of walk through this, uh, we are, uh, like I said, we're going through, uh, continuing through uh, this gospel, and we're just up to the point where it's about almost the last week of Christ, uh, Christ's life. And we come to uh, this passage here in uh, this chapter, chapter 10 here, and Jesus is just about ready to jump into Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho is about 18 miles from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would be the place where he is uh, been passionately headed and pursuing for, for quite some time. Um, and the, it was, it's really the place where many would believe that the Messiah would finally come. Um, those who uh, would see the prophecy in the Old Testament of the one who would come and see that manifested. And so uh, he's been, what, three and a half years that he's been ministering now? And so you can imagine the, the great following that he would have by now, Right. Um, it's almost towards the end of his ministry, his earthly ministry, and by now, so many people were surrounding him, were following him, and even to the point where, you're probably familiar with the story of the triumphal entry, um, that's about to happen even right after this passage in, uh, in chapter 11, and triumphal entry, you think of a lot of people, you think of this great big celebration of him coming into town, well, uh, I, I think that, uh, this was very similar not the same, but similar in the fact that there were numerous people, because it talks about this great crowd that was present, that there were numerous people that were there, and they, they knew who was coming. In a similar way that in the triumphal entry, they knew who was coming as well. Okay, and, and in this time, a little more background, in this time of culture, any type of rabbi or any type of teacher, um, when they had a following, they would teach. So... Yes, they had settings similar to this where someone stood up front and there were listeners who listened, but more often than not, the way that they taught was they walked. 
and as they're walking down a road, there's numerous people gathered around them, and they're, they're teaching them. Symbolic of, of, of following a way of life, following not just here you see me in the setting teaching, but you have no clue what I do outside of these doors, but here's Jesus who's, just, who's living his life, and people are following him in everything that he does, and he's teaching, and they're learning from him. And so, as we begin to look into this chapter, um, we see uh, an important uh, character named Bartimaeus. And we find out that, that this guy Bartimaeus was blind, uh, probably been blind most of his life, uh, if not all his life. And obviously, in the midst of such unbelievable commotion, even a blind guy is probably going to figure out something's going up, going down, okay? Um, and so we learn from Luke's account, uh, we see this, this story in, in Matthew as well as in Luke, we learn from Luke's account that he, he got word from somebody who was coming, okay? Um, that's how we know that he's, he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the one who was coming. So he gets word from somebody, um, but, but think about this, okay? Um, I don't know if you've ever been to any type of uh, political rally or a concert or any place where there were people that were famous and well-known. Um, uh, for example, uh, this was a while back, but uh, Kyle and I uh, went to uh, this World Golf Championship, and I think it was 2001, just it was the day before the World Trade Center attacks. And we got to see, it was a practice round. The tournament actually didn't even happen, um, which is kind of cool. I have a hat for something that didn't really ever exist. Um, but uh, we went to this practice round and got to watch Tiger Woods practice. And it was just, it was unbelievable. But more than anything, what was unbelievable was, was the crowds that were gathered around, that were following him. And, and I, I specifically remember this. There, there was a time where he hits this shot, and, and it goes off of the fairway, just off the fairway, um, near, near, the side of the, near the side of the fairway. And instantaneously, instantaneously, when that ball hits the ground, mobs of people sprint as fast as they can to gather around that ball. Because they know who's coming right there, Tiger. Like, and that's that's a similar scene to what's happening here. And and the mobs come in so much that that you you can only get so close because there's so many people. And then you have people that are coming and pushing you back, right? Okay. But imagine somebody who's blind, who really has no clue, like where he's going, how he's getting there. I guarantee you, someone was like, "Hey, bud, come on, you know, right over here." Like, no, they're kicking him, like. Look out, like, I'm getting in here. Like, I want to see this guy who's coming. Like, so he is absolutely just really a nobody. And in that culture, it's pretty common to find uh, a, a blind, poor beggar outside the city gates. They're pretty much considered an outcast, pretty much considered worthless, not a lot of value, uh, pretty much a lower-class citizen uh, in those regards. Um, but there's some unbelievable things that we learn from him. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to give you three things. I want to give you three lessons that we can learn from this guy uh, about Christian discipleship, about what does it mean to follow Christ. And we're going to take those lessons from this guy who's a blind beggar. Um, and and here's, here's the first thing, and then we'll look at it, is to see the reality of your spiritual condition. Okay, look at, look at verse 46. To see your reality, to see the reality of your spiritual condition. In verse 46... It says, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, 
So he's on the side of the road, the road that Jesus would pass down. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, someone had told him this, we learned from Luke's account, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, I want you to think about what's happening here, okay? Because here's this, this blind guy who, who in this moment, we know from the title that he communicates that he knows something about the prophetic Messiah who would be promised to come. Because that's, that's the title, the son of David, which is just symbolic that, that God would send someone through the line of David who would become the Messiah who would eventually save, bring salvation to the world. Okay? And so, he knows that. Somewhere back in, in, in time, he was taught that. And when he heard Jesus of Nazareth, he knew this is the Messiah. Okay? But what was immediately connected with that was this. In Isaiah chapter 61, there's a prophecy about this Messiah who would come. And within that prophecy, there's a specific scripture that says that this Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. All right, and and so yeah, there were probably some physical implications to that. We see that in the way that he lived out his life, right? In the way that he lived out his ministry. But even more than that, there were spiritual implications, okay, of being blinded by sin and needing to begin to see the reality of the depths of our depravity and our wickedness and see God for who he is. And then, in turn, cry out to him for mercy. And that's exactly what Bartimaeus is doing here, is, is, is he cries out. But think about this. What in the world is different between this cry and yesterday's cry? Okay, we've all been downtown St. Louis. We've all, been, we've all seen poor people. We've all been around beggars. Uh, I've, I've been ripped off by beggars in foreign countries. Uh, we've seen it. And, and what is the typical cultural response to beggars? We hate them. We, we, they're, they're nobodies. We just, they're worthless. What, why are they around? And, and we offer no mercy to them many times. Not, not everyone. Not everyone, but think, just think. This is kind of a side note, just for free. Just think about what we learn about the life of Christ and what's going to take place in him looking to the weak and the needy. Because the beggar really didn't have anything to offer Jesus. But he cried out to him. But what would be different about this cry? Because did, did he not cry out yesterday? Probably. Cried out for help. Hey, I need some money. Can you take me down the street? I need some food. How in the world did he know where he was going? Did he have one of the sticks? Did he have like a... Guide donkey? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. They have guide donkeys? Maybe. Um, but, he, but here's what I think the difference was. It was in where he placed his faith. Okay? That it was in the person of Christ that he thought he knew of the prophecy that would come. And so, I think to a degree he knew the place where he was putting his faith, but he would come to know it even greater in what was about to take place. Because he's beginning to cry out. And what happens? He realizes there's nothing that's going to prevent me from being heard by Christ. Even to the point where he's rebuked and shut up, you're blind and he doesn't want anything to do with you. You know, people are probably, you know, when you think of like 
famous people, who hangs out with the famous people? Well, all the other people that are famous, or the people that have wealth and money. Well, what is a beggar going to do? Nothing. So they're worthless, right? Not in Christ's book. It's interesting. In Titus chapter 3, an incredible portrait of the gospel, it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But according to His mercy, did you pick up on that word? Like He cries out, He says, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He recognized that apart from the mercy of the promised Messiah, he was just going to be left on the roadside just like before. And he cried out all the more, which, which is incredible to think practically. Where do you go when you, when you despair? When you're just broken and where you're just like, I have nothing left. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. What happens is a lot of times, like the words of that song we just sang, Christ be the center of my life. Like we say that, but in the midst of trial, in the midst of despair, we turn to alcohol. We turn to drugs. We turn to sex. We turn to, we turn to different things that maybe some of them may be good in and of themselves on a fundamental basis, Okay? But we make them a God, and then we wonder why in the end we're, we're, we're left broken. Because we're not placing the object of our faith where God intended us to place the object of our faith. He cries out for mercy. What an incredible picture. And then the second thing uh, is a call to be urgent and persistent in your pursuit of Christ. Because what happens? Here's what happens. He's kicked to the side. Look at verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Then what is he going to do? Like, fight him? Like, you know how hard it would be to take somebody out if you're blind? Like, what is he going to do? He rebukes him, but, but notice what he did. Telling him to be silent. But he cried out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He, he wasn't going to just back down because he knew that if he would put the object of his faith in the person of Jesus, believing that he would be the one who would die, if we would place the object of our faith in the person of Christ, like I'm talking on a fundamental level, talking about every single day. Like when stuff doesn't go down well at work, like when stuff doesn't go down well at home, I know this doesn't happen very often, so this is really hard to be practical, so just bear with me, Right? Okay, no, on, on, on a fundamental level, in everything, like, where do you turn? And when the world pushes you back, and when the world wants to distract you and say, shut up, don't turn to him, turn to, turn to me, what do you do with that? Do you recognize who Jesus is, the person of who he is, and cry out to him, and be persistent and urgent in your call? Because here's the deal. Are we not all beggars? If God doesn't come and rescue us, if God doesn't come and rescue my wicked and depraved heart, I'm done. 
right? Do we see that biblically? I hope you do, because it's there. If God doesn't come and rescue me, man, on my best day, I'm cursing God. You know that? That apart from God's mercy on my life, on my best day, I'm doing nothing good for God. Romans 3 teaches this. There's no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. Here's a need of mercy. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 28, verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, If you don't hear me and answer me, I might as well go down to the pit. It's like, I might as well die. Like that's, that's desperation. That's incredible desperation. But here's where the problem comes in. I think that there's something in this text that absolutely flies in the face of how most of us, of how many evangelicals interpret Christianity. And it's interesting because it happens and he uses his two closest, two of his closest disciples to teach this. Okay? Um, we're going to skip ahead uh, and then we'll come back. We're going to skip ahead to verse 51. In verse 51, Jesus asks a really interesting question. Okay, so look at verse 51. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? He asked blind Bartimaeus this question, what do you want me to do for you? And what's interesting is, if you remember it all from last week, it's the same exact question he asked James and John in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? I don't think that's by coincidence at all. I think he's going to teach his disciples something through a blind beggar. <laughs> something incredibly profound, and he wants to teach something to us in that same regard. But if you look at 37, look, look how James and John answer the question. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Like, I wonder if that just set Jesus back. Like, they just didn't get it. They wanted this place of this position of status, thinking that, that Jesus would be the one who would come in power to rule and reign and overthrow oppression, and that they were going to be a part of that. Take us with you, Jesus. Let's go to Jerusalem. No. And then what happens with Bartimaeus? He's the one who, in the end, if you look at it, Let's just read it. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. So he comes and he, he heals him. His sight is, he can see. And he's like, Go and enjoy life. You can see. Go and enjoy life. And what does he do? Look what it says. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Go and enjoy life. He's like, I'm following you. There's nothing out there I want. I'm following you. He got it. He got what it meant to follow Christ. It's just an unbelievable picture. Now, there's something else that I need to point out to you that isn't going to stand out right away without a lot of study. Um, there are two words in this passage that are identical in the original language that are different in the English in verse, 30, in verse 46, where it says that Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside. And then in verse uh, 52, where it says that he followed him on the way. Those are the same exact words. I want to talk about this, the way, real quick. Um, 
before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. Okay, let me just back this up a little bit with some scripture. Um, we read some passages. The references will be up on the screen. In Acts chapter 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In Acts 18, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, a little bit later on it says, they took him and explained to him the way of God. In Acts 19, it says, but when some became stubborn and continued to unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, in Acts 19 later on, it talks about there was no little disturbance concerning the way. In chapter 22, I persecuted this way. That's what Paul was talking about, how he persecuted Christians. He's like, I persecuted this way. And then, then we can continue on. And so... I want to I think about this for a second because here's what this is communicating. This word way literally denotes a road or a highway or a way of life contrary to a name. It's not just a name, like Christianity, like Christian. Okay? It's not just a title. Like, let me put this really practical for you. I'm a teacher. I have the title of a teacher. But here's the question. Do I really teach? Because you can have the title of a teacher, but be a horrible teacher and really not do anything in regards to teaching. Okay? You can have the title of a pastor, but not pastor people at all. You can be a coach. Say, I'm a coach. But when you step into the role of a coach, you really aren't a coach at all. Okay? The same thing. It's this... It's this nominal Christianity deal that I'm a Christian because, yeah, I just inherited it. That's what people call me. You know, kind of like you sit in McDonald's long enough and you become a Big Mac. It just doesn't happen. Okay? That there's a progression. There's a way of life that's wanting to be communicated in the book of Acts and, and elsewhere. How about uh, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is... Is, is using in this passage, uh, is showing this wordplay that's happening to denote these things that, that are crucial in understanding what is Christian discipleship? What does it mean to follow hard after Christ? Okay, now, um, there's a lot more emphasis played, placed on the Christian discipleship part than the healing part. Did you know that not every single time that Jesus passed by someone who was physically sick, he didn't heal them every time? Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, even in our own situation. Sometimes God chooses to heal, sometimes he doesn't. But look at verse 49. This is, this is crucial, and this is where it all boils down. And he stopped. He said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Okay, so here's what's happening. Um... He comes to this realization of Jesus beginning to pursue him and call him out of his despair. Okay, He's probably shouting over the crowd. He's probably pointing out at somebody and saying, call him. That, that guy way over there, he's sitting down. You can't even see him. I heard him cry out to me. Okay, w- Will you go get him and bring him to me? Okay, And so he brings him to him 
and he's, he's wanting to teach him this reality of this pursuit. Okay? Because he, here's what's happening. Think about his desperate situation of blindness. There's nothing he can do to bring himself out of that. Okay? This is the essential teaching of the gospel. That, that you and I, apart from the outside work of Christ, that we are, that we are dead in our sin and can do nothing. Okay? If, if someone was dead, would they have any choice of their own to say, I think I want to come to life? No. No. Not at all. Apart from the saving work of, of Christ to come and regenerate a dead heart, to bring to life that which is dead, there's nothing happening. At all. Okay, but, but he calls him, right? He calls him out. He says, come to me. So how does this look? How does this practically look? Because I think many in this room would say, yeah, I've been called by God. It's the biblical teaching doctrine of election that we see in the scriptures. Okay, I've been called by God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be called by God? Well, let's look. Verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. You see it in there? Let me help you out. A cloak for a beggar, for a poor person, was so valuable. Not only that, but there's actually a law, a Mosaic law, in Exodus 22, that says this, that a cloak, which would be like an outside garment, which would almost be like a coat, that it could not be used as collateral on a loan. That if this poor person owed you something, okay, and you wanted to gain collateral, you could take his cloak, but you had to return it back to him by nightfall. Because his cloak was the very thing that he used to cover himself to keep himself warm, to maybe make a pillow, to maybe, if it's raining, to shield the rain. Like, that's, that was valuable to the point where the law set it up to protect that cloak for a poor person. Okay? Now, let's reread verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. So what does he do? In this moment, everything that identifies him throws off. He casts off. He says, you called me to yourself? The way of life that I've known for so long, the things that I've clung to so much, the thing that's been my my shield and my protection, the thing that I've found so much hope in, I don't need it. And what does he do? He follows him. He, He follows him. He threw it off to follow Jesus on the way. Here's, here's the third, third and final thing. He embraces Christ as his identity. That as I, his identity is no longer found in, I'm blind and I'm a beggar and, and I need help, but his identity has is, is come to be found in Jesus. To be everything that he needs in life. I want you to think about this. His faith produced something in his life. Like, look at verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Your faith has made you well. A lot of times our faith 
It, it really doesn't do much for us. Because it's really not genuine, active, pursuing faith in the person of Christ. It's just it's this thing that we have because we think we're supposed to because it's going to result in heaven, right? But John 17, verse 3 says, This is eternal life that you may know Him. There's no destination in that word know at all. I want you to turn uh, to Philippians 3. And I want to illustrate this passage from Philippians 3. And then we'll begin to wrap up. He threw off his identity and he took on the identity of Christ. It's interesting some of the things that we are tempted to find our identity in. I don't know about you, but sometimes if I don't feel like I'm doing well as a teacher, I begin to feel like I'm not a very good person. Sometimes uh, if I'm not doing very well as as a husband, or as a dad, I begin to feel like I'm not all that valuable. And so I find my identity in things that when those things go wrong, I don't have anything to, to cling to. And just so you know, those things will go wrong. It's promised. They will go wrong. And that's why when we elevate anything but Christ... And those things are taken from us. We have nothing to cling to. But you elevate Christ in your life, and He's primary, He's ultimate. Anything else can be taken. Anything else can be broken in your life. But Christ is the constant in your life. Philippians 3. Uh, Just summarize the first seven verse, six verses for you. Paul is basically boasting about his own righteousness. Or he says, if I could boast, here's a list of reasons why I'm a stud and you're not. Okay? Now, read verse 7. That's my own paraphrase. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, think about this. Parallel this to Bartimaeus. Everything I had, I considered loss. So this cloak, the thing that identified him... He considered it garbage. He considered it nothing. That he didn't need it anymore because he knew where his identity was found in. Something of so much greater value, of so much greater worth. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, righteousness from God that depends on faith. Focus on those words real quick, found in Him. Think about that. What does it mean to be found in Christ? So many of us are found in our jobs. So many of us are found in so many different hobbies and different things, and those things begin to define us. And even to the point where some of us are are found in, in our church life and in our devotional life, um, apart from Christ, that He is the one who is our righteousness, that He is the one who brings me purpose and brings me life. Continue. 
verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any possible means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this, I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here's, here's what Paul is saying, that the process of discipleship is a path that you travel. Because what is he saying? He says, not that I've already obtained all this. How often do we, do we fall into this slump of, I've, I've arrived. Like, I don't know that we'd physically say that, but we, we, we come to this realization of, I'm doing good. To the point where we fail to continue pressing hard into Christ. That's the process of Christian discipleship. Pursuit. It's a path. It's something you travel. It's not just a single fixed place. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider this, or brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize and the upward call of Christ Jesus. I see in that passage the picture of repentance. Forgetting what lies behind, I hope that repentance is something that is a, a, a reality in your life that you practice on a continual basis. Because you will never plunge more and more into the depths of Christ without being more and more of a person of repentance. And forgetting what lies behind and pressing on toward what lies ahead. God, I blew it. And I come back and I cry out for your mercy and I beg that you'd pull me from the depths of the pit and you'd bring me back to yourself. It's a process. And sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's not fun. God is making us into a people. People that are his own. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any think, if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. You know what he just said? Is that if this isn't a part of your life, is if you're not on a passionate pursuit to follow the way, biblical Christianity, the person of Christ, you're immature. That's what he says. But those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Keep going and I'm almost done. Brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction and their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, and their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And how often are we people that we pursue so passionately the things of this world, the things that Scripture says will pass away, and we forget, man, we're not made for this place. We're not made for these things. And we wonder why our pursuit of these things ends in disappointment and destruction. Not that there's not some pleasure on earth. 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I got a text message uh, yesterday afternoon. This is from an incredibly good friend of mine. And it said, My sister has been in a terrible car accident. We know nothing. Please pray. Not long after that, I got a second text message. It said, my sister didn't make it. Please pray. And so as I was studying this passage, and as I stand in this moment, here's the question that we have to ask. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? A mom, a four-year-old daughter, and a 13-month-old son. Single husband, single father now. Brother, a mom and dad. She was 27, on her way to work, hydroplaned into oncoming traffic, was T-boned and killed. what What do you do with that? How do we understand and interpret pain in life? Because you know what? This is the such a huge thing that, that people will say, there is no loving God. If pain in life is such a real thing like it is, then God can't be real, okay? But I immediately, when I heard that story, and I weeped, and I, and I continually go back to Acts chapter 17. We're going to put it up on the screen, because this is a passage that I cling to a lot. In Acts 17, listen to this. I think the answer is found in here. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So here's what it's saying. It says, from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of time, God determined something. Two things, actually. Number one, he determined periods. So he determined certain time periods. He determined that you and I would be alive and be present here in 2009. He he determined that. Okay? And then what else does it say? And the boundaries of their dwelling place. Not only that, but he determined that we would be here. That we would live in the city that we live in. That we would walk by the people that we walk with. That we'd talk to the people that we talk to. We'd go to school at the school that we go to. That my friend's sister would work where she worked, and drive where she would drive, and it would be raining when it was raining. Okay, and so this didn't not take God by surprise. At all. Like God, it says that He's a part of this, that He's doing something in this. The question is what? Look at the next verse. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards Him. And find him. I guarantee you, for Bartimaeus, there was a whole lot of, God, where you at? I hear commotion, where you at? I guarantee you that right now in this moment, there was a whole lot of, in the family of the loss of this loved one, there's a whole lot of, God, where are you at? Where are you at in this? And I called my buddy Dave. 
And I talked to him, and I've just been texting him scripture after scripture, and I just said, cling to the word, because that's his hope. And he just said, this is the word, he said, you're a rock. And I texted him back, and I said, we need each other. Because here's the point. That's, that's life. That's life. There's tragedy in life. But what is it, what is it for? Because if you don't properly understand this reality of Christian discipleship, that God is walking you and I through a process of progressive sanctification, that we're becoming more and more like Christ, then you take a tragedy like that, and it cannot make sense. It cannot. You can't. Take any hard trial in your life. Anything. And apart from God is doing a sanctification process in my heart. And they might never know why it was her time. Other than the fact that God is so much bigger and has a plan for the sanctification of many. Think about it. Every single one of us is at a different place in life. Doing different things. But every single one of us, God is, as a believer, for those that are believers... Is working a process of us becoming more and more like him. And you know what's interesting about that? Those are not at odds with each other. Like when I get mad at a, at a seventh grade boy who's acting up, and I got to hammer him, and I'm trying to sanctify him, God's trying to sanctify me. You notice how those things go together? A lot of times we don't want them to go together. They go together. They fit together because God sees all. He's so sovereign. And he's working in the midst of all of these things. And in verse 28 of that passage, it says, In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So the point tonight is is really simple. I hope I didn't overcomplicate it. But it's this, that, that God is desiring to do a work. And my question is, is are you following him? Are you running hard after him? Like seriously. This isn't just like church time that we just say this, but like seriously. Because knowing Christ brings meaning and purpose to pain. It does. In things that don't make sense apart from God preparing us and working in our hearts and doing something to make us more and more like Him, it doesn't make sense. And so, you're, you're one of two people. Either you're sitting on the side of the road or you're following the path and you're running hard after Christ. And you know what? Sometimes it takes people to come along and maybe this is the voice of God in your life to say, get up off the road. And run hard after him. And it takes people that when you're broken and when you're hurting, to send you scripture and to say, trust Christ, trust Christ. Because you just want to quit. You just want to give up. And God is using those people. And that's why we push so much here. Community. Perseverance is a community project. That's why we push that. Because it's biblical. And so... 
Here's what's at stake if you don't. Your joy. Your joy. And God is calling us to himself, which according to Psalm 16 is a pursuit of joy in knowing him that brings purpose to all areas of life. Let me pray. Jesus, we have nothing apart from you. Nothing. And we ask, God, that you would come in this moment and be the center, be our hope. God, I pray that you would bring those in this room to a place of, of brokenness and repentance, God, that need that. That might say, I know God's calling me, but I've just been sitting on the side. I've just been doing nothing. And no wonder life doesn't make sense. No wonder I'm broken. No wonder all these different things are going on. And I just need to run hard after you to be found in you, not having a righteousness of my own. So God, we trust you in this moment that you would be our God. And God, you'd continue this work of progressive sanctification in our hearts. God, thank you for your mercy and your love. In Christ's name, amen.